Hello, and welcome to a slightly different At The Flicks episode. For this show, Graham and I are going to be talking books. However, don't worry, as the book in question, Reckless Abandoned by Jared Felschreiber, has many film references. And I'm delighted to say we're going to be talking about Reckless Abandoned with the novella's author, Jared. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Very thank well, you. thank you. You keeping well? I'm very well, thank you. We know you're a bit of a globetrotter, so where are you at the moment? <laughs> I've been in Warsaw, Poland uh, the last couple of years, and I've been writing about Central European affairs. We want to be very careful with the book, and we don't want to give too much of the plot away, because we want to hook listeners in, mm-hmm. so that they'll go out and get this book and read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, how would you describe The Reckless Abandoned for our listeners? Well, thank you very much for having me, and it's a real wonderful opportunity to to speak about it. The book essentially is about a young up-and-coming playwright learning the toils of assembling a dream project involving Bob Dylan, Woody Allen, and Dustin Hoffman. Basically, he has to navigate the business world to see his art dreams fulfilled. There are a lot of cultural historiographic references, be it in film or theater or literature, and I was very self-aware of all of these motifs. Okay. I love the novella. I, I thought it was really it intrigued me coming across these people at that time. Now, for me, I saw it as something of a maturity tale. Now, whether you can see that as an intellectual maturity, that the lead character, John, grows throughout the book, or literal growth, now that's open to debate. How would you interpret that statement, Jared? Uh, I, would ag- I would agree to an extent. Uh, I certainly wouldn't call it a coming-of-age story. It's really essentially one of understanding the the genesis of creativity. In no way was it autobiographical, I would say, but there's something very telling about Woody Allen, Dustin Hoffman, and Bob Dylan in terms of where they were at uh, in the summer of 1984. Uh, At the time, uh, Dylan was somewhere uh, in Europe uh, during his European tour, whether it was in Belgium or Italy. Um, I kind of keep that a little bit mysterious just because it kind of fits the, the man himself, uh, at least as an artist. Uh, Woody Allen was uh, shooting or about to shoot uh, the Purple Rose of Cairo, which to this day, uh, Woody has said that it's his best film. And uh, Dustin Hoffman was also at the pinnacle of his career playing in uh, Death of a Salesman. And there was some strain, there was some uh, symmetrical thread that united them. I think, you know, you can, one can argue to this day there's something about them being artistic shapeshifters. And in answer to your, your question, I really don't know if John was wide-eyed from the outset as an aspiring playwright, but he did try to find some sort of understanding of what is really the, the kernels of creativity. And as the book and the novella kind of proceeds, one realizes that the book isn't essentially about John Duggan a 29-year-old aspiring playwright who makes his living as a theater critic, trying to find some artistic understanding. But it's essentially about the genesis of creativity. And it's really meant for my readers to have a kind of understanding of what creativity could be about. And he learns that even business people, for example, you know, I, like you said, I don't want to give too much away, but even titans, moguls uh, at the time and before then, whether it be the the head of uh, Madison Square Garden or whether it be great master builders uh, such as Robert Moses, there was something very powerful 
and poignant about the idea of what it means to create something of importance. One adage that I purposely think summarizes much of my story is when my protagonist sees a quote on the side of a park where he used to play basketball all the time. It's a Robert Moses quote and said, parks are the outward visible symbol of democracy. There's something to be said for coming to terms with who you are, you know, because you can have all the inspirations, but if you don't find your inner voice, you don't find your inner motivation of what makes you a human being, let alone an artist or an architect or a scientist, something of merit, you really don't know who you are. And and what's interesting, as you said, you, you, you got these titans in the book, you've got Dustin Hoffman, you've got Woody Allen, and you've got Bob Dylan. But for me, the moment in that book where I had, you know, I suddenly sat up, bolt upright, and uh, there was a revelation on something that was said, and I'm not going to tell you listeners what was said. You have to read the book that. <laughs> but it, it was an encounter he had with Beth Henley, the playwright who, who wrote The Wonderful Crimes of the Heart. And that moment, it just blew me away. I, I've written that down separately to remember it, what, what was what was actually said in the course of that conversation. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate that you picked up on that. And I think it kind of speaks to the idea of self-actualization, um, this kind of theme of uh, that I was going for for a long time. And, and like I said, I, as the author, was have, have been so inspired by those who are the best of the best, whether it be Norman Mailer, whether it be David Mamet, whether it be John Dos Passos, whether it be Hart Crane, whether it be those who are mentioned in the book. And, you know, Henley's adage there, which I also will keep uh, <laughs> mysterious, there was some moment of self-actualization for, for John Duggan. And I think I didn't want to be pedantic or didactic in any way, but I wanted to, to get these quotes or get these encounters, like you said, revelatory. There are a lot of things that I withheld um, but that was something I, I couldn't keep out yeah no it, it's stunning i got to ask i mean are john's heroes your heroes and i ask that knowing that <laughs> two of those people are referenced in the credits of your short film crossroads as well well that, that was back in 2004 so i appreciate that of course i mean I, I can just say that there's a symmetrical thread of all three and of course they're all still going strong uh, which is what really is what makes them great. There are those that have tried to push them off the pedestal for one reason or another, or trying to pigeonhole them in some way. But of course, I mean, the fact that the prodigiousness of all three are something to behold. You know, a lot of people who have, have come up to me and, and, you know, after they've read it and they said, why, why was Dustin part of the three? Because you know, Dylan and Woody are creators, whether it's in song, whether it's in a painting. You know, Bob Dylan is a brilliant painter, a sculptor, you name it. You know, Woody Allen is not just a filmmaker, but he plays clarinet every week at the Carlisle in New York and in some fancy hall in, in Europe. You know, Hoffman is basically an interpreter, an actor, you can say. A lot of what Hoffman has done hasn't fully been recognized for not necessarily being a creator, but for the how perfectionistic he is, uh, like Dylan and, and Woody. And he's known to be difficult, you know, and Dylan is known to be oblique when it comes to answering, 
are you the voice of a generation or are you <laughs> what is the meaning of your songs or Woody Allen views himself as, as I mentioned in the one of the early quotes, you know, as a wisecracker from Brooklyn. A lot of their prodigiousness are belied by the fact that they're every every man in a lot of ways. I mean, if you if you listen to Dustin's interviews, he always talks about the idea of failure and that failure is is so close to success when it comes to seeking art and seeking something truthful. I will only say that. Hoffman, I don't think, ha- has gotten the recognition enough. I remember when he received the AFI award, I think Lifetime Achievement in the, in the late 90s. He was in a hotel room and he was uh, watching a great artist accept his own award. And he said something along the lines of, uh, we're all trying to seek this note. You know, we, we go, we, you know, it's like, you know, he keeps, he keeps hitting the different keys on the piano and says, have we hit that note yet? Have we hit that note? Have we hit that note? And he was trying to say that every truth-seeking artist seeks that note. And that to me is why I put him in the pantheon with Woody Allen and, and, and Bob Dylan. And I, and I will say the fact that they haven't worked together, and to this day, all three have never worked together. In fact, two out of the three have never worked together. And I don't know if it's just coincidence, kismet, personal taste. I don't know why. And that's sort of the beauty of the mystery. But the fact that they're so prodigious and Woody is working on his 50th film as we speak and Dylan is, is releasing a book of essays, you know, six years after he, he got a Nobel Prize for literature. It's like no awards, no accolades are enough. It's about the work. And, you know, and, and, and Dylan is... 81 and Dustin is 85 and Woody will be 87 in December. So it's really about this incredible prodigious talents and but at the same time I don't believe my novella is about them. I really believe it's about this notion of having the reckless abandon if you will to seize the opportunity of whatever your lot is in this world. I just want to go back on one thing. One thing you said there made me smile. We talked about uh, Dustin Hoffman and being difficult. And I'm always reminded of that scene at the beginning of Tootsie where he gets fired from a play for playing a tomato that wouldn't stand up or did stand up on on stage. This is a tomato. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely superb. And it's funny because in that scene is Sidney Pollack. So it's like, you know, he's directing. It's almost like it's like kind of a art imitating life, imitating art. It's like, you know, it's a scene within a scene within a scene. So it's like, but I think they're yeah. friends. And one of the other things I love about Reckless Abandon, now, and I'm going to put my cards on the table here, New York is my favorite city in the world. Oh. And the amount of research that you must have done on that in the mid-80s, because if you were born around then, you were obviously very young, to you know, <laughs> on that period of 84. So to have that knowledge of New York at that time and put it in the book the way you do. That's incredible. How much research Thank did you, you do? <sighs> well, <laughs> I do appreciate what you're saying. And and whenever someone says that it's very evocative and it conjures up a kind of uh, the, the milieu and surroundings very well, I'm very touched. I can only say that I, I did go to the New York Public Library at the time and use some of those microfiche newspaper clippings to kind of match the date and time of what I was writing in the literary and the creative aspect with what was happening at 
at that moment, uh, whether it was in theater, whether it was in history or, or what have you. And I also, if you will, went on a similar journey uh, as John Duggan um, in the sense that I did uh, speak to, to those, whether it be at Syracuse stage or wherever. I was born a few years before, <laughs> uh, 1984, but there was something magical about that particular milieu. A lot of it was kismet, uh, just how these things kind of happened at the same time. Um, I always actually think of uh, when Michael Jordan was drafted in June of, of 84 as well. And I remember as a kid, I used to always have that date in my head, you know, being a, a real uh, basketball fan. And and he changed, you know, obviously, basketball and, and the NBA for the years to come. And I just remember there was a video about when the Chicago Bulls won their first championship. And they just said, the dawning of a new era. And I just had summer of 84 in my head, you know, for months and years. And there was something magical about it. I did a lot of it wasn't necessarily research. It, I mean, obviously, I did a lot of research, but I just wanted to be as uh, truthful to kind of match the milieu with the zeitgeist of the time, whether it be uh, going to uh, the Brooklyn Historical Society, whether it be the Museum of the City of New York, but also knowing that this is my city, you know, knowing that Something has been lost in New York, and I, I grew up 10 blocks from the World Trade Center, and it's a different conversation politically about it, but or even culturally, but the city has changed, whether it's become gentrified or whether it's become too woke or whether it's become too, too clean, if you will, or, or it's lost its sense of authenticity. And I think at that time, there was a real sense of something authentic. And true. I, I think a lot of it, you know, was kismet as well in terms of how those things artistically were happening simultaneously. And also, okay. and also the fact that these artists and writers were doing really interesting things then. Without a doubt. As you say, Purple Rose of Cairo, Dustin Hoffman, Tootsie, Death of a Salesman on stage. Yeah, I can't speak to the music i'll hand over to graham for his view on bob dylan and another icon mentioned in the book von morrison one of graham's favorites he owes you money doesn't he graham he does owe me money for a 40 minute concert yes when i read the book the thing and i had to read it twice because there were a couple of things that just didn't gel the first time the thing i loved about it was the the fact that your character was living in this world surrounded by all these incredible people at this incredible time and I got a bit carried away with, you know, all of the other characters. And when it came to the end, I thought, well, who was that about? And I thought, I better go back and read it because it, it really was. He traveled around and most people travel around in a bubble. This guy traveled around in a windstorm of talent and interesting people. And I was fascinated with his meeting with Bob Dylan in Ireland. That was Is that really, because you're Irish? Probably, yes. Well, I'm a big Dylan fan, and it was also at Shane right. Castle and, and, and that sort of thing. And I love the fact that Dylan was watching a Harold Pinter play because he likes to watch other artists at the peak of their, um, uh, at their artistic talent and, and absorbs all this. And I thought that 
your central character, John Duggan, was going through this mm -hmm. uh, continuum of all these people, but he didn't seem to be absorbing much. It, was that intentional or was it just, you know... And that, 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 that John wasn't uh, Yes, he, was, he wasn't absorbing. He was watching, he was observing, he was handing his his uh, script to people, but he wasn't he I, I, wasn't very pushy, you know? He wasn't, like, trying to get in there. And, and, and he was absorbing all this well, stuff. I think the fact he never wanted to be sycophantic. He was both not sycophantic, but he, he realized that they're just as vulnerable as he is. And that's what he was marveling at. Um, and he appreciated that, that sense of to be the best, you have to work with the best and you have to observe the best and you have to have the gumption or the reckless abandon to just do it. Um, you know, I play around with that expression a lot. And I kind of play with it when I talk about, you know, Norman Mailer's uh, book about the rumble in the jungle. Um, yeah. You know, the fight, you know, which is a great literary journalistic work, um, which very much inspired uh, me, I would say. Uh, I think John does absorb it, but he just didn't want to be one of these theater critics well, while he loved writing about it so much to be somehow an observer in it, or to somehow uh, live vicariously uh, through everyone else doing something else. Mm. Uh, because... I was very vague intentionally in describing what Reckless Abandon, the play within it, was about. You know, I kind of give little hints, little kernels, little little uh, nuggets about what it could be about. But I just really thought that it, it wouldn't be fair to my readers who I never took for granted. I wanted my readership to be guys like you who can pick up on these motifs, who can pick up on not just the subtleties, but also the sophisticated literary references. Uh, but I think he does absorb it, but he, he knows that his time is, is coming. And not, you know, I don't want to give away too much about Slane Castle, but Slane Castle, the journey there really is almost akin to, shall we say, the MacGuffin, you know, in Hitchcock, uh, in the sense that it was a sort of a plot uh, device that I used to, yes. to make some sort of big event uh, in the end. And when Dylan watches Pinter in his own way, he's overwhelmed and almost envious because he never learned to write a play the way Pinter did or the way Be Beckett did or the way Shakespeare did. And now, as I listen to Dylan talk on, you know, on, on his own show, I don't know if you've listened to Theme Time Radio Hour, he does quote Shakespeare a lot and he does quote but I mean like not just in I mean not in song vaguely or reference he does mention you know he does quote uh, Alex Dumas Count of Monte Cristo he's very self-aware of these things but he was never given this academic education if you will or he didn't you know he wasn't like Leonard Cohen who uh, went to McGill University you know in Montreal and has like a literature background and you know Dylan is very much raw in that sense. And, but he's present. Being present is what I was really conscious of as I was writing it. And I think John is an up and coming playwright, up and coming in quotation marks, but in reality, he already is one. And this, this idea of having a revelatory moment, it happens in different stages. And I, I think Robert Moses and Irving 
Mitchell Felt, you know, the founder of Madison Square Garden, has as much influence on him as as meeting his any of these three icons. And you know, the Beth Henley episode, you know, I'll, I'll keep it mysterious, but that also could be a mirage. You know, maybe he potentially could have you know read it every day as he was writing reviews, and he saw you know her little plaque about the crimes of the heart on the wall or something. So. I, I was playing around with what could be dreamlike. And some people compare my book to Midnight in Paris. Some people compare it to Birdman, you know, by Inaritu. But I, I really look at it more from Honoré de Balzac's Lost Illusions and, and a lot of these older literary motifs or pieces of literature, I should say, which I think the more times you read it, the more you can pick up on it. Um, but yeah, I, or, or the more breadcrumbs you find. Yes, yeah, that, that's hopefully. Yes. Hopefully. No, but I, but I will say that I, I, I do think John absorbs it, but he just doesn't have the experience the way the way Dylan and Alan and Dustin have. But I will say the idea of creation is very telling as well, because you know Bob Dylan obviously changed his name not only once. I mean, it wasn't Robert Zimmerman to Bob Dylan. He, played around with other names like Elston Gunn, I think was one in the beginning. And then it was Bob Dylan, D-I-L-L-O-N. And then he changed it to Dylan. People think because of Dylan Thomas. But if you watch the documentary, No Direction Home, he says, oh, it wasn't about that. So, you know, whether he's telling the truth or not, who knows? He just thinks, I think his quote was like, it just looked better, D-Y-L-E-N. Even Woody Allen, you know, he was born Alan Stewart Konigsberg. And I mentioned that in in the novella as well. He took his name from Woody Herman, who was also a, a clarinetist. So they were crafting themselves. And I have the luxury of appreciating these uh, you know, raw talents. I mean, Woody and, and Bob especially rebelled at a very, very young age. Woody Allen was writing little comic pieces. Uh, I don't know if it was the New York Post or some uh, local uh, newspaper in his teens. And he came from an Orthodox family in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Of course, they wanted him to be a pharmacist, you know, his parents, you know. And even when, if you watch this really great documentary, uh, Wild Man Blues, that came out in the late 90s by Barbara Koppel, you can see that, uh, you know, even when, he, when his parents are kind of not fully impressed by all he's done, and he feels very sheepish, you know, going back to visit his parents who are like in their... 90s or something and they said why didn't you ever become a pharmacist and this after like you know what he has like as this unbelievable career so it's, it's all astonishing what they continue to do but I, I do believe john does absorb it he just doesn't have the the backbone but he's not sycophantic i think that's uh it, it was actually one snippet that i saw from journalists i really respect who picked up on that um i just don't think he has the you know, he's making that transformation from theater critic to artist. Okay. So, as we said, Reckless Abandon is set in the 1980s. We've spoke about John being on his journey. Do you have any thoughts of continuing John and Dimitri's story into the 90s and play with that John's desire to create against Dimitri's sort of more commercial background? Mm. Well, Dimitri is actually the most compelling character for a lot of uh, the readers I spoke to, and actually one of my main editors, Gabrielle Herodine, she mentioned in the first or second draft 
uh, when she read it that she wanted more Dimitri action because there's something very <laughs> compelling about him. And, and, and not necessarily in dialogue, but just about what are his motivations. I don't know if, if it would be through the 90s per se. It could just you know, pick up where it picks up you know, at the conclusion. But Dimitri has this interesting understanding of, of West meets East kind of idea. Um, I was very, you know, fascinated, obviously, or I've been fascinated myself as, as a journalist uh, writing about a, a volatile region. Um, and at the time, you know, obviously, that's why I'm in Warsaw, Poland at the moment. And uh, at the time in the 80s, there was something opening up, if you will. I'm more interested in, I think, Dimitri's uh, transformation because I don't think he's, he, he just saw his dreams dashed because of the rough and tumble in New York off-Broadway scene, which on one hand was flourishing and burgeoning. It also, there was a bottom line about how, how to make money. Dimitri understood that on the show, The, the Americans, which I, I never like to, to reference uh, because I kind of put it in my own capsule because it's so great and brilliant. There's a good quote in there that says something where you have a lot of brilliant people but they, they're not making any money. Um, I think it's like I think of a nuclear scientist, and, it, and it's a bad combination. So Dimitri is very aware of like there has to be a way to not just do art for art's sake, but to, to make uh, money in the process. And obviously John is aware of that, but he's kind of comfortable because his family appreciates the arts and appreciates him fulfilling his dreams. Dimitri, there's still a lot to be written about what his motivations are. So I, I would love to kind of play with that idea because, you know, Russian cinema and Soviet cinema, I mean, I studied a little bit of that in university and I never fully got it. <laughs> I, always, I always thought I did. You know, I studied, you know, the greats, you know, whether it be Tarkovsky or Eisenstein or even the newer directors like... Uh, Bodrov, uh, Sergei Bodrov, I think his name is, and his son, uh, movie Prisoner of the Mountain. And, you know, there was something very uh, profound, and obviously Tarkovsky's Sol Solaris and Mirror, you know, these are highbrow things that, you know, I could play with uh, for uh, a next novella with Dimitri because it, it would require me to go more east. This is what I like talking to you, Jared, is you went highbrow. I went very lowbrow thinking of them in the 90s after I finished the book. Um, I'm, think, I'm thinking about Dimitri and I'm thinking, one word, Miramax. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, um, yeah, he's definitely in the indie scene, yeah. I mean, if he gets picked up, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, the whole thing Miramax, of how Miramax went, you know, it set off with the best of intention, mm -hmm. but was became corrupted quite quickly because of individuals at its core. Well, that, that wasn't really uh, discovered until about 20 years after. I mean, it really was the seedbed for indie cinema. I mean, I, I, mean, I think getting back to uh, you know, why I picked Summer of 84, you could say, is really interesting stuff was happening and really interesting things were things that I personally found uh, worthy to write about, created an, an ability to, to write something more interesting or more uh, passion-filled. Uh, the 90s cinema never really got to me. I mean, we can have a discussion about what Miramax became and imploded with all of that. But I don't look at Dimitri 
just looking for the bottom line. I think he, he just wanted to figure out how he can incorporate his profound understanding of theater and film and literature as a, as a means to make money. Um, in no way do I make him as an envious character or jealous of John's success or, or John's journey, but I think there's a lot to admire about what Miramax achieved in the 90s. Uh, in terms, yeah. of, but but I, but I, but I will say that um, I, I covered Sundance a few times back when I lived in Los Angeles, and I did learn about you know some of the strange strategies that Miramax used to to get films under their auspices. So, you know, it, it was kind of a monopoly and strange, obviously strange and lascivious uh, <laughs> things happened. So. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't want to distract. I mean, obviously, we're looking in the future. This is a great novella. I've yeah. got a couple of other questions to ask you, but just at this point, could you say where people can buy copies of your entertaining and thought-provoking novella from? Thank you. Uh, it's available worldwide at various uh, independent bookstores, record stores, libraries, museum gift shops. Whether you go on Amazon or Special Order or uh, Book Depository, it's available in both paperback and hardcover, whatever your preference is. And I will underscore that the expanded edition is the one to get, which was published in the spring of 2022, but it's available worldwide. I keep plugging at it to make sure it's available in Europe and, and the States. Um, but it's, it's, you know, once you, once you put in the, my name and you'll, you'll find it. Excellent. So obviously you, you've had involvement in, film as well throughout a lot of your career. Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about Tria Film? Uh, Tria Film was actually a brainchild that my colleague, uh, Philip Bruno and I, uh, who's, a, who's a budding documentarian who I had met uh, back when I lived in Los Angeles around 2005, 2006. And uh, we were friends for, for many years and we kind of went our separate ways. I mean, I, I was working as a film journalist and he made a, his documentaries uh, in Africa, actually in Kenya and Tanzania, and also in Vietnam about the gemstone industry. And uh, he's made really great films about that. And some features, some shorts. He's, he's had a great career and he's based in France. Around 2013, 14, or maybe, yeah, around then when I was in New York um, and he was in Montreal at the time, we wanted to create a kind of zoetrope, you know, if you will. Uh, kind of zoetrope or, or some kind of a, a literary cinematic projects, if you will. And I guess he is a fan of Tree of Life, the Malik, uh, Terrence yeah. Malick movie. And, and I think yeah. he, he had used that as, as sort of like his production house name. But it sort of worked um, when we kind of were deciding how to promote our projects. And Philip and I, and also uh, another colleague, came up with this idea to to kind of use that as as our moniker um, for whatever creative projects we were pursuing. I was in New York. Uh, there were a couple of film ideas that I had thought about, but Reckless Abandon kind of took over. So that became my shall, literary contribution. Um, and, you know, basically it's, it's considered, I guess you can say it's like an LLC, you know, in the States. And basically it was used as a a vehicle to promote our creative projects. And uh, Philip and I have, have used that for all of it. It's something that we hopefully will even more support because of the films and, and my novella. Are there any particular 
tree of film projects you would like to point listeners to to try and seek out? Well, I, I would say uh, Philip's films. He made a, a documentary called Follow the Zebra, which is a uh, documentary on the gemstone industry, gemologists in the, in the minds of, of these countries. He followed a, a famed gemologist and also in Vietnam. Um, you can see it on our website, treeoffilm.com. You can stream it there. I have my uh, portfolio there, you know, which basically is, is my career. Uh, as a journalist and a writer, I've written uh, some of my poems have been published in some literary magazines as well. Um, one literary magazine was called Uncivil Magazine about eight or nine years ago. If you go to our website, you can read our biographies and you can see all of the video links. Um, because as a reporter, when I'm doing my stories, you know, we live in a multimedia age. So I've been balancing my writings with uh, the interviews I've done. And I've interviewed dissidents, journalists in harm's way, you know, whether it be in Central Europe or wherever, Eastern Europe. Uh, I was a UN accredited reporter about a decade ago, and I have some interviews there. So uh, if you just go to our website, triafilm.com, you can see what we've been working on. Triafilm.com, well worth checking out. Yeah, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Yes. Thank you. Jared, you've been involved in many film festivals over the years. Can you tell us about the ones you've enjoyed the most and, and why those particular ones? Well, I just got back from, I was in Gdynia, which is up in northern Poland, and it does have that pageantry <laughs> that that I think Cannes and, and Venice Film Festival kind of, that people definitely gravitate to. I think being a, a New Yorker, I know the Tribeca Film Festival like the back of my hand. I grew up in Tribeca, so I, I, it's really cool to see how it's uh, evolved. And, you know, just, just the idea that, you know, De Niro created that in 2002 as a way to help out his neighborhood, our neighborhood, after 9-11, will always have something meaningful in my heart. Um, because, you know, obviously you feel like your own city, your own neighborhood has, was, was violated uh, in that time, um, not just yeah. from from a geopolitical standpoint, but just when you look up at the Freedom Tower, it's, it's not w what it was. And that's, and that's another story. But um, I had good uh, experiences covering uh, Sundance back in 2017, 2018. There was something kind of like walking through the snow, kind of catch a bus uh, to get to a theater in the Rocky Mountains or, you know, it was just what, what film festivals sh should be about. You know, you should kind of feel a little bit out of place, but also know that you're, you're viewing upcoming great films. And I also, I got to quickly speak with Spike Lee uh, while it's uh, Sundance. And uh, that was fun because it's kind of like a New Yorker meets a New Yorker talking about New Orleans. And my mother uh, grew up in New Orleans. And, you know, when I asked him, I didn't even ask him about the film that he was showing about. You know, I think he was showing a film called Passover, which is like a uh, play that was shot at Chicago Steppenwolf Theater uh, okay. that John Malkovich had, um, Gary Sinise had, had founded uh, way back when. And I didn't even want to ask him about that film. I just wanted to ask him about his films on Hurricane Katrina. And uh, he kind of looked at me, you know, saying like, you're a New Yorker. You know, I could, you could just, he could just see that kind of like glare that I was giving him and just kind of like, you know, get, you know, get to the, you know, that what's up with your snappy, attitude but he, he you know he, he's a guy like me you know because you know he goes to a lot of Knicks games 
And, yep. and you know, obviously in, in Reckless Abandon, I kind of play with that. But I feel like that, that little rapport we had, you know, kind of crystallizes what these festivals should be about. Um, you know, too often, you know, it, it's like these wide-eyed, you know, debut filmmakers who, I don't know, it, they're kind of like extensions of like student film festivals because um, there are so many. But when you're working with like the best of the best and you're up close and personal with them, getting back to whether my protagonist uh, feels it, for me personally, I, I feel it. You know, and, and I feel I'm in the cadre of great filmmakers. I mean, I've yet to meet Woody Allen, although I was on set uh, when he was shooting uh, Rifkin's Festival in San Sebastian a few summers ago. Uh, Justina Miklashevich, who did the brilliant uh, cover painting of Reckless Abandon, is actually a, a painting called uh, Siglapur, which I think in Latin means lost at sea, that she had on display at the Benale uh, in 2007. So when she gave me the, the ability to use her painting for the cover, you know, as a cover painting, I was, you know, this, this, this will sell the book even more. Even if they didn't love the content, they love the cover. So sometimes you can judge a book by its cover, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very good. But I, but, but I will, oh, but I will say about, you know, when Woody Allen was on, you know, I think that was a kind of film festival for me because in the sense that Woody was in his, in his comfort zone and it wasn't just like meeting somebody on set. I mean, back when I was a kid growing up uh, in, you know, New York, uh, I grew up a few blocks away from when they filmed It Can Happen to You. I don't know if you know this, Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage Prade. and Brigitte Fonda. Exactly. They, they actually, it was, it was shot about three or four blocks from my apartment growing up. And they actually built that cafe on, from a parking lot. And now they have a cafe there. I think two or three years after the film, they, 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 they built a cafe and people think it's the same from the film, but it's not. Brilliant. And I just, re- and I just remember meeting Nick Cage at the time. I was like a 13 or 14 or 13, I think. I just thought that this was like casual, you know, I thought that this, but then when you realize, and, and I've lived in so many different cities that this isn't casual, it's not something that happens every day, but, but in answer to your question, it's like, I think Tribeca Film Festival obviously means a lot to me just because of the symbolism and and the you know the fact that De Niro is 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 a lot like Woody Allen and Dustin Hoffman and Bob Dylan because he's still himself. This idea that Tribeca became a thing is because of because of the festival. Yeah. Uh, going back to your Spike Lee thing, I, I'm quite interested because Spike Lee to me gave one of the best bits of advice ever for aspiring filmmakers. And that was get hold of DVDs with director's commentary tracks on. Just listen to them. Learn from what they're saying. It's so true. You know, you can pick up so much from those commentary tracks. It's true. It's true. And it's also kind of like, in some cases, uh, the director doesn't want to say anything more. I mean, I listen religiously to Coppola's tracks, you know, whether it's Godfather trilogy or it's The Conversation or Apocalypse Now or everything i mean he's he's just a wealth of of so much insight and you know i think george lucas said the way you become a great filmmaker is just to study history and to study mythology and to study anthropology and to to be a person of the world and i've taken heart to that but at the same time you know steven spielberg never gives a commentary track 
or uh, Woody Allen does never ever take do a commentary track. But but I think with with Spike Lee, it's like I do have you know do the right thing, and uh, he 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 does have that like childlike zest which no one can take away from you know he, he and he and he teaches you know he's, he teaches a master's program at nyu you know he's very open and actually i'm glad you mentioned that because after i had, had that brief press opportunity with him after his screening i remember <laughs> this is kind of funny he i remember there was uh, he was sitting in the crowd watching his own film and i was sitting next to one of his uh, students from nyu and there was some line in the play that he was shooting in the film, uh, which obviously went over the heads of, you know, I don't know if you know, but Sundance is in Utah and you know, the Mormon capital uh, you know, of, of America. And he made some urban, you know, reference in it, or there was some urban reference to it, meaning there was something very city-like about it. Um, you know, not because racial or anything, but just city-oriented. And no one got it. But in, in the corner, you hear this cackle coming at you know, the highest pitch. And of course, it was Spike, you know, you know Spike Lee laughing at, you know, and he was the only one who like got it, you know, and it's like, you know, you can't take that zest away. And, you know, I, there, there, are things, there are some qualms I have with Spike when it comes to uh, some of his choices as a, as a filmmaker. But when it comes to his zest, he's top of the line. Although I... I wish he didn't get the Oscar for Black Klansman. I think he's made much better films, you know, before. Yeah, I like Black Klansman, but I think you're right. I mean, do the right thing. I think it's yeah. marvelous. But even, but, even, but even his document, you know, his document, Four Little Girls was really great. And I just, you know, I, but yeah, I mean, but do the right thing. I think Kim Basinger said something that it was, or maybe she said it about Malcolm X, you know, they, she said it was like a, a prejudice thing that, you know, was happening in Hollywood at the time. And, you know, I think he made some comment that there weren't any uh, black soldiers and flags of our fathers by Clint Eastwood, and they got into a little thing. And you know, and, but I'm on his side when he's, you know, arguing with Clinton Tarantino over like the N word. You know, I I totally, uh, you know, I think as a writer you can't be uh, reckless and you can't be too careless. You know, even if you're recreating you know, your own reality in film. I will say one last thing. Uh, I was in living in Israel at the time of the Jerusalem Film Festival. It was at the time when Tarantino was screening uh, Inglorious Bastards. And I do think it was sort of funny when, because I love when Tarantino speaks cinema, you know, whether it's like, you know, because he's a real cineista, he's a real passionate, uh, knowledgeable film geek, you could say, but he. But he, but he, you know, obviously started, you know, when he was working in video archives in L.A. But I was there and he, you know, and obviously in Glorious Bastards, you know, deals with killing Hitler or killing, you know, something that maybe is in the zeitgeist or subconscious of some Jews. But the way he said it to like an Israeli audience, he's like, I, I did something that you all wanted to do, but didn't do or something. And said something... <laughs> Like, or, Holy cow! And, and you have to mention, and you have to realize the way he, you know, said it with like all of his gesticulations, like I did you all a favor, you know. But but the Israelis, for the most part, have loved it. You know, they 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 loved what he said. They loved that he, you know, that he just was. I'm not challenging them, but gave them some kind of like uh, like enthusiasm. And you know, in these days, you know, he's married to an Israeli, and he I think he has two kids, and they're living. 
in the same neighborhood where I went to school, you know, in Tel Aviv, you know, Ramat Aviv. So it's like good that he's like there because there's a lot of vitriol against the only democracy in the Middle East. So, um, but when it, but I just remember that at the Jerusalem Film Festival, like just him just making this, you know, really odd statement because I mean, I don't, I, I personally think if you're going to make a historical film or piece of literature, you, you don't have to uh, compromise uh, necessarily, but you have to be mindful that it's a slippery slope if, if you don't take precautions about all aspects of, of what you're writing about. Yeah, yeah, and and that comes back to you know, particularly modern culture. What can you what can you say? What can't you say? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there are films, classic films of the seventies, like Blazing Saddles, for example. You could never remake that today. Yeah, but also you have to realize like who Mel Brooks is, and and it's like you have you, you know that his heart is in the right place. I think I don't think Tarantino's heart is always in the right place. I think he he takes a kind of big topic and then as he says he breaks the glass you know so that he you know that it doesn't have to be in this capsule but but this idea of like political correctness or wokeness i mean it's like it's just boring as far as i'm concerned you know it's like you know the you know the real rebels you know it, it are those iconoclasts that i was trying to champion in, in my book but I think as well, I mean, with Tarantino, I'll be a bit controversial. I actually think he's a lazy filmmaker because, you know, he said, oh, I'm only going to do 10 films, but then he paces them out, but he'll appear in other people's films. He, I think he loves the, the showbiz world, but when it gets down to doing the work, he will drag that out as long as possible. I don't know. I, honestly, I think he's a creative writer at, at, at heart. I think he has a very arrogant view about, auteurs and you know i mean I, I hate the fact that he kind of dismisses like the greats because he can <laughs> you know because you know, as, as, he, as he would say because it's really fun to you know and i i don't like that attitude i mean i think i heard him in you know dismiss Truffaut you know a few weeks ago Jeez. you know like he said that Truffaut didn't make great films at the end of his life it's like it's like it's like outrageous, you know, and not because, you know, you have to love all the greats. I mean, I don't love Godard's films, all of them. Um, and I don't love, you know, all of uh, Antonioni's films or something. But there's a kind of like revisionist film history world that he's in. Um, and he thinks he's the end all be all. But, he, you know, he does have a podcast going now, by the way, which is, you know, nice to you know listen to because he does have that cineista sensibility which is unparalleled but getting back to like Woody Allen's like every week he plays clarinet at the Cafe Carlisle I mean it, it, like nothing's going to stop him you know and it's just like you know people who go to see him at the at the Cafe Carlisle it's like probably not jazz aficionados that are going to Blue Note or to Smalls or Village Vanguard or any of these other jazz clubs that he would happily play in but Cafe Carlisle gives him that Monday night spot and he's in. I mean, he didn't, he historically didn't go to pick up his Oscar for Annie Hall because he was playing that night. So it's like awards, you know, don't mean much, you know, but they, but they do, you know, in the sense that it keeps him going and keeps him young. But then at the same time, you know, Oliver Stone, you know, who's like, I totally disagree with with so many things. He's relentless as a filmmaker. 
and he has that reckless abandon that the greats do. And he, you know, I think Scorsese uh, taught him at NYU in the late yeah. 60s. And I think his thesis film was like Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now-ish 10 years before. I think you can watch it on a DVD in the Oliver Stone set. And I think Scorsese described him as a very kind of shy and reserved, you know, infantry guy, you know, because he just came, he was in the infantry in Vietnam and he had something to say. You know, Tarantino, like, I don't think has as much to say. I think, you know, he has these, you know, people say, oh, well, at the end of Pulp Fiction, you know, they have this revelation and, and, you know, they come to terms. It's like, remember, he's the one who wrote Natural Born Killers initially. So, you know, there's something a little screwy there. And, you know, and I think obviously Oliver Stone directed it. And I think they had this whole lawsuit against each other or something. Do, do you but, know it nearly got banned in Britain? I think it, yeah, I, I'm sure it did. And I think that's the kind of film that that is in the same genre as Pulp Fiction. And I think that same year that this disgusting movie Kids came out uh, by Larry Clark. I don't know. Yeah, I've not seen that. And, no. it, and it's in the same neighborhood of, of where I grew up. And I remember my dad, you know, told me back when I was in high school and we're like, we don't know kids like this. And it's like these, it's this irresponsibility of, of making such films shouldn't be rewarded and i think the academy and these award shows have have given him too much but i will say that covering these festivals in poland have been you know obviously uh such a thrill and such i hate to use word great humility you know but but there's a sense of like i'm really excited at, at any of these festivals in poland because there's a sensibility here uh, that's that's that isn't fully embraced um, and obviously what's happening next door in Ukraine they've married the Odessa Film Festival with the Warsaw Film Festival now so a lot of these Ukrainian films uh, which would have premiered in Odessa have played here so you know meeting Ukrainian directors and writers has been a thrill as well okay um, I'm just checking. I did actually meet um, Jan Komas, Jan Komas, the Polish director. He, he, funnily enough, came to the Cheltenham International Film Festival, which a couple of years ago when they were running a retrospective on Polish films. Interesting chap. But I digress completely there. So let's go back to the main show. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I can't finish the show without mentioning as you've said you know, you're based in poland and you've written a lot about politics over the years and clearly being right next to ukraine what are, what are your thoughts on where that's going at the moment well i will i will say that i also lived in uh, kiev l- late 2018 to early 2019 uh, i had a four-month contract with kiev post i've been writing about eastern europe uh since around 20. 20- 13 or so when I was a UN credited correspondent. And so I had met a lot of emigres and dissidents and former poets and filmmakers and authors um, in New York. And also when I worked in Washington, DC. So I am familiarized with what's been happening there for well beyond, you know, February 24th, uh, the Russian invasion. I honestly just think of my friends in Kiev and I just think of my friends in even in Moscow as well. And some of them are Ukrainian born and their family are on both sides. I, I just look at it that in order to be a, a, a real 
you know, young, intrepid reporter. You have to be in this region. It just happens to be something that I was passionate about for a long time. You know, I felt a real kinship to these journalists who have been intimidated and uh, in some cases killed. And, and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Uh, I live in a neighborhood in Warsaw, which is historically the old Jewish ghetto called Moranov neighborhood. At the time of when the war started, about three blocks away is the Ukraine house where they helped a lot of uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, find apartments and to get jobs and to kind of relocate here. I think there's been over five million uh, who have come. I just look at it as an extension of what I've been writing about and documenting about for, for a while. The last review or the last feature story I wrote was about, it was by uh, Mara Temkovic. Uh, it was called Live, and it's a, it's a short film, uh, maybe about 18 minutes, and it's actually playing now at the Chicago International Film Festival, but I saw it up in Gdynia, and it was the best film I saw there, and it's about the two reporters uh, who were arrested because they were covering uh, a protest in, in Minsk, and it was based on all of the the violence that uh, the Berkat police uh, or the Oman police uh, did against protesters just trying to to have to, to basically challenge a rigged election. You know, Poland is kind of a a, a strange place in the sense that it's like you know it's obviously nestled in Central Europe. It has strange borders, you know, dangerous borders. You know, I've been writing about the migrant crisis that the Belarusian president, uh, Lukashenko, I mean, president in quotation marks, but the dictator, yeah. you know, autocrat, yeah. he, um, you know, was trying to foment a migrant crisis, you know, and to kind of challenge, you know, European sensibilities about what is really your, you know, are you really going to take in these migrants? And it was like a cynical hybrid warfare uh, that Russia and Belarus do really well. And it's a kind of sensibility, you know, that you have to kind of get used to in these in this kind of climate. I feel empowered um, just because I am an American here. Um, I don't feel threatened. There are so many more brave reporters. I mean, I worked with some in Israel who, you know, cover Gaza and some things that I just wouldn't want to do every day. Um, you know, talking to terrorists. Uh, I wouldn't want to do border. ever. No, no, but I mean, but it's, but, but, but in Israel, it's, it's, it's like safe, you know, at the same time, it's like, it's, it's, I, I, I just, all I can say is everything that I'm writing about, you know, is about chronicling dissidents in nascent democracies. And that's what I'm really interested in, because it's like, I like the fact that Poland is a little bit imperfect, you know, that obviously, you know, and that it's kind of like Czech Republic or, you know, the, the Visegrad countries. And I will say that I'm really grateful for where I write uh, with Central European Affairs magazine, which is the flagship publication for Civitas and Tezet, which is a think tank based in Budapest. And basically they enabled me to get accreditation with the foreign ministry here in Poland uh, as their Warsaw correspondent. So I do have free reign uh, to write about politics, to write about culture, to write about history. Um, I've written a lot about Jewish history um, in some cities here. The idea that freedom of the press, whatever, what have you, is not to be taken for granted anywhere and everywhere. And, and you know, a lot of these academics, you know, who, who speak at the best universities, whether at Oxford or Cambridge or Columbia University or Harvard, it's like, 
a lot of what they're saying, with all due respect, is is a way to fit a kind of narrative in whatever minutia topic will be in their next book. And I've I've kind of told myself that I never want to be that kind of person. You know, the reason why I wrote Reckless Abandon is at its core is that I'm that same irascible, good-natured New Yorker, you know, you know, as Woody would say, wisecracking New Yorker, but I never want to be told how to think or how, how to perceive the world without living it. You know, I saw a really great quote somewhere where it said, I'd rather see something once than hear about it a hundred times. I have this kind of mantra in my head, not because I look at myself as this renegade reporter, but I, I have this ability to give these renegade people a voice. And I, I look at Coppola, I look at Polanski, I look at Dylan, I look at Woody, I look at Offman, I look at all of these real shapeshifters as an extension of, of what our purpose or man's purpose really is. I covered an OSCE uh, conference in Warsaw. I wound up you know, speaking with Alexandra Metvichuk, and she and her organization just won the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, she's a civil society leader. And I hope you read the interview I did with her because it was just kind of done on the sidelines because I had to, you know, cover this event and about, you know, what's happening. Central Europe are, is helping uh, facilitate uh, cooperation in Eastern Europe, et cetera. But there were a lot of pedantic speakers. But <laughs> the one that wasn't pedantic was Alexandra, and she's, and I'm sure she's, she can't be older, mid-30s. And there she was, you know. I just never wanted to be told, and I wanted to really live it, for whatever that's worth. What's interesting is you've given us a, a really good grounding yes. on, on who you are and how that feeds into, into the novel. And I do appreciate that um, we've taken up quite a lot of your time. So where we started is... <laughs> with Reckless Abandon, the novella by Jared Felschreiber, which is really, really good. I urge you to, to seek it out. We'll put some links onto the show notes uh, for this. But uh, also check out the Tria Film website. And, well, it has been an, both an education Boy, and a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I will say that you mentioned Cheltenham earlier. It is sailing at the Badlands uh, record store there. So, shout out. Oh, oh we know Badlands. We know Badlands. Yes. We know those guys. So if you want a really good independent record store, that's Badlands. And while in there, pick up a copy of Reckless Abandon. Jared, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. Thank you very much. <laughs>